As I've prepared for tonight, I've just been struck as to what a beautiful story, true story, uh, we're going to consider tonight. It, it is so very compelling. Um, does the place that you're called to labor seem so small and little known? It is great if God is in it, for he will not forget his own. Little as much when God is in it, labor not for wealth or fame. And we're going to see somebody that does just that. There's a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. What I, what I love about the account we're going to look at tonight is that it really makes very clear that no matter where you're placed, no matter how small you feel like your influence might be, that you can serve God and that God can take that testimony, your faith in him, and make a huge difference in people's lives. Last week, we looked at Elisha. We looked at the double portion of God's spirit that was on him, a double portion of Elijah's spirit that was on him. Um, Elisha had huge impact in his generation. And what was striking about him, his life was not just the life of confrontation, it was just largely what Elijah's was like, but, but Elisha's name means, my God is salvation. And we really see God intervening in multiple ways, large and small, to bring healing, uh, to bring uh, provision, to bring salvation to people. So we're gonna drop down in the middle of Elisha's story to focus on a person that's not even named and to learn how God can use someone who's small for great things. I'm going to read the opening verses of 2 Kings 5. Um, and then after that, rather than showing the words up here, I want you just to sit back and listen. Even if you close your eyes, I want you to imagine what it would be like to be there. And I want to read you the story. And then we're going to look at the cast of characters that are in it and draw some truth from it. 2 Kings 5, beginning in verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, that would be his Lord the king, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. So the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. 
And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be, shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant. Notice how he's talking about himself, your servant. Two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, that would be the king, goes into the house of Rimmon, that's the king's idol, to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, see, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged them, and he tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing, and he laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent them in away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. It's quite a cast of characters in this beautiful account. There's Naaman, a mighty man of valor, but a leper. 
All his greatness couldn't solve his problem. There's the servant girl, captive from Israel, serving in a Syrian household. There's a king of Syria who sent a letter to the king of Israel. There's the king of Israel, a man of politics, but not a man of faith. And there's Elisha, prophet of God, unimpressed by human greatness. And finally, there's Gehazi, the worldly servant of Elisha. I want to start with what perhaps is the most important character of the lot, and that is with the servant girl. The one who's in the weakest position of all turns out to be the key character on which the entire story depends. Her resolute faith, unusual compassion, and bold courage is in stark contrast to other characters in the story. You would think that she would have been so traumatized by being ripped away from her family and homeland that her faith would have faltered and died. But no, she still believes in Yahweh. She still believes in His power as manifest through the prophet Elisha. And almost as extraordinary as her faith is her compassion for her mistress and her master. The very ones that that she's a slave to now. Her master suffers from leprosy. She does not gloat that her captors suffer this way. She seeks to serve their needs and point them to the God who can provide deliverance. Ironically, she is less of a slave than Naaman is. She shows the courage to testify to God's power through Elisha and her confidence that Naaman can be healed. What would make her think that Naaman wouldn't scoff at the idea? No matter, she bore witness anyway. This little girl teaches us that whatever station of life we find ourselves in, even tragic circumstances, away from home, loss of freedom, serving captors. None of that strips away from us our purpose for being on the planet as believers. We can witness from a prison. We can serve our enemies for the glory of God. We can make a difference that changes the very course of history. Most of us live in a time and place of peace and relative security. We're used to comfortable lives, but we still must deal with disease and suffering and defeats and finally death. And there's no guarantee that we will always enjoy what we have today. It really doesn't matter. If we belong to Christ, our purpose and the power to fulfill it remain in whatever state we're in. And I'd like you just to consider that while we're in a peaceful time, it's very easy to look around and see all the threats to our culture, to our nation, to our world. It's not hard to imagine how radically everything could change. And, and let me say, since we're you know, heading into election year when people just fret to a ridiculous level, it actually doesn't matter who wins in terms of your service to God. It doesn't matter 
as, as much as it might cost if you're attacked by China or Russia or Iran, our purpose on the earth remains the same and God remains the same. His power is the same. And this little girl, this little girl is just ex- an extraordinary servant of God in horrendous circumstances who's made the most of what those circumstances are to bear witness to God. Naaman is mighty, and Naaman is great, but his leprosy is a problem he can't overcome. He's he's like the, the perfect example of every human being on earth, no matter your talents, no matter your position, no matter your wealth, there. There is a disease that plagues your very soul that you can't rid yourself from. In fact, leprosy is often used as a a symbol of of sin's plague in our lives. Naaman had it all, but Naaman was a leper. And until that was dealt with, his life couldn't be truly happy. Elisha's command, delivered by a servant with no fanfare, angers him. Naaman is used to doing hard things. He's used to doing hard things successfully. He is used to the pomp and fanfare of royal favor. I mean, the way it describes him, he has, he's like right-hand man of the king because he's so good at his job. He thinks he has better ideas about how his rescue should be done. You know, if you're going to heal a great man like him, let's do it with some flair. Let's do it with some fanfare. Let's have some music. Let's wave your arms and say some magic words. It's classic man-made religion. And the only problem with classic man-made religion, however spectacular it might be, is that it doesn't work. All the ceremony, all the pomp, all the circumstance, it doesn't have a power that can match the power of God. And thankfully, his servants persuade him to do what Elisha has directed, even though it seems too easy and it's humiliating. And if you think about it, that's the way the gospel is. It seems too simple, and it leaves no room for your pride because there's nothing you do that gets you in. You cannot heal yourself. When Yahweh heals him, Naaman's very grateful and generous. And he's also sensitive to the the difficult conflict of interest that he will encounter in his service to the king of Syria when the king worships his idol. He, He shows a greater sensitivity. Here he is, a pagan who has just converted to the true God. He shows more sensitivity of of conscience than Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, shows. His conscience seeks to find a way to stay true to Yahweh, even in his difficult work environment. And then there's the king of Israel. He is arguably the most powerful man in the country, but he is fearful and alarmed by the king of Syria's request. He has no faith in God, and so he has no solution for Naaman's need. Many live their entire lives blind to spiritual realities, never having experienced the power of God themselves. It is a life of fear, a life of manipulation. Everything hangs on your own performance. It's a fearful place to be. 
because no one can do everything that needs to be done. So the king of Israel, he's king, but, but he's like the weak link in the whole story. He, he needs God desperately. And then there's Elisha. Elisha is unimpressed by Naaman's great standing, and he doesn't cater to Naaman's pride. Captain Naaman must humble himself by yielding to whatever God says and does if he wants to be healed. Elisha also confronts Gehazi with the servant's foolish choices to steal and to lie for personal advantage. This isn't the time to live for wealth and station. It's a time to serve the Lord in a way that is true to God's character. Elisha had a powerful ministry, but it's clear that it wasn't about himself. It was about Yahweh. His name means my God is salvation. Nothing else, no one else, and that's why he refuses Naaman's gift. How many men in ministry have made merchandise of ministry and have misrepresented who God actually is? And you don't have to be one of those hucksters that talks about how, you know, a prayer delivered with a $100 bill makes it especially powerful. We don't want to use ministry to people as, as a way of lining our own pockets. We, we want people to know what God is like and that, that he is gracious and kind and generous and that his servants are humble and not self-serving. And then there's Gehazi. He seems to resent the Syrians more than the little girl taken captive does. He thinks Naaman has gotten off too cheaply and decides to cash in on this new believer's sincere desire to honor Yahweh. Gehazi's greed leads him to lie to Naaman and a lie to Elisha. I mean, does he think Elisha's God is deaf and blind? I mean, think about it. You're going like, Gehazi, you're, you're serving the prophet of the living God. He misrepresents Yahweh by indicating that what Yahweh has done for Naaman must be paid for rather than it's being a gift of grace. He is judged by receiving Naaman's leprosy. Gehazi had a leprous heart. He was living for the very thing that Naaman was being rescued from. How often those most familiar with the biblical faith and closest to the work of God have the least appreciation for it and hunger for worldly advantage. It's one of the best ways you can find to ruin your life. And then there's another character, Yahweh himself. He is clearly sovereign over the whole story. It was Yahweh who gave Naaman his victories, which resulted in Naaman's bringing this little girl from Israel into his home. You would, you would think a man like Naaman would never have a chance to trust in the living God. 
You would think a pagan like him, successful, I mean, hobnobbing with the king, would never hear clear witness to the gospel. So God takes a little girl and puts her right in his home. God was the reason that she had such faith. God was the reason she had such huge impact on Naaman and everyone connected to him. God, Yahweh, heals Naaman. Nothing else can account for it. I mean, you can dip 50 times in some river and you aren't going to be healed. The river didn't heal Naaman. God healed Naaman. He gives, God gives Elisha supernatural vision into Gehazi's dishonest tactics with Naaman. And it is God who strikes Gehazi with leprosy. So here's the cast of characters. Naaman, servant girl, king of Syria, king of Israel, Elisha, Gehazi. Which of these characters is most like you? Are you in the group that, like the king of Syria, the king of Israel, and even Gehazi with a worldly mindset and no confidence in the living God? Or are you like Elisha and the servant girl and eventually Naaman, who by the end of the story, even Naaman joins Elisha and the servant girl as being a believer, trusting in the God who is salvation. God is the true hero. And if he's your hero, there's no place that you can be where you can't serve him and end up making a big difference. No matter how small you are, I think that's really cool. You know, we start small, and if we live long enough, we end small. You know, those of you in those later decades, you're, you're watching, you're watching, you've seen many years go by, you're, you're, you're watching abilities, mental clarity, physical strength, you're watching that kind of slip away little by little. You're, you're maybe fighting hard to keep it as good as it can possibly be. Do not think, do not think when you are small that you can have no impact. Because just as the child can have impact, a person all the way to their deathbed can have impact. Wherever you are, little as much, if God is in it, so keep trusting him, keep sharing the gospel, whatever happens, whatever happens. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we think we have to have certain circumstances and have to have certain possessions, opportunities to serve you. Lord, help us see the ways we can serve you even when our opportunities are small, even when we're hemmed in, even when we're in circumstances that, humanly speaking, we might hate, circumstances that are hard, circumstances that bring pain to our hearts, circumstances that seem to re reduce, imprison us, to reduce our freedoms. Lord, help us to remember that the greatest freedom is the freedom we have in Jesus. 
and help us freely serve him wherever we are, through every hour that we live our lives for the glory of Jesus. Lord, we know that he rewards even a cup of cold water given in his name. And God, we pray that even the little things that we do might have big impact on the world for time and for eternity for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray.